0: Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a new friend who is destined to be a great friend. Her name is Susan Ashley Hunt, also known as Sue Hunt. Sue is a published author with numinous books. And the reason why we met each other was because Ruby Warrington, who started numinous books, formerly of The Numinous, you may remember the blog from back in the day, Ruby sent me this book and asked if I would like to read it and meet Sue and have Sue on the podcast. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Okay. I trust Ruby, whatever. And it was sort of, you know, noncommittal. I'll read the book and I'll see. I get the book. I can't stop reading this book. I have had it next to my meditation space for the last, uh, I don't know, since I got it about a month ago. I've gone through the book twice I have a sense for the very first time in the whole history of this podcast that I need to do a part one and a part two with you, Sue, because it's so rich and dense and delicious and helpful and relevant. And I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for being here.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very honored to sit in conversation with you. Mm,
0: Thank you. Uh, I want to tell my listener a little bit about you first. Radical Buddhist and spiritual guide Sue Hunt walks readers through a nine month consciousness design process to dismantle binary worldview and discover a more contemplative vision of self and reality. Now, let's define binary worldview for a moment. Binary worldview is the thinking that everything we encounter is either this or that. It's the root cause, as Sue says, of so much suffering, oppression, inner and outer conflict in our world right now. Often the polarization we see in the wider societal structure and social structure is a projection of this same binaried schism that lives within each of us. Now, combining elements of Buddhist and yogic philosophy— which normally would totally turn me off, but this book is absolutely exceptional, and I demand, my listener, that you definitely entertain the possibility of getting it. Combining Buddhist and yogic philosophy with a step-by-step constructive method, Sue invites us to fully embody the both-and mentality that is the foundation of a more ethical life. So, there are nine binaries in this book I'm jumping right in great in these yeah and in these nine binaries you've split them up into three sections i have the book right in front of me it is so awesomely painfully dog-eared you have the first section which is called rooted in reality private and public is the first binary sick and well the second masculine feminine the third in the second section it's called living heart action lack and abundance hustle and flow root, and crown. And all of these sound like, oh yeah, I've heard these before. I don't need to listen to this podcast. I promise you, you haven't heard them explained in these ways before. Please stay with us. The third section, higher octaves of consciousness, which for my little fourth way child inside of me really appreciates this mention, attachment and aversion, self-will and destiny, past and future. Now, I want to start where we start at the very beginning, because private and public is something that has become, you know, really top of mind for so many of us of late, and it's the first binary for a reason. Each of us has experienced the struggle of trying to reconcile public faces, private lives, okay? Our very identity needs to be integrated and uncovered, all the various identities, plural, plural. All the many masks, as you say, that we adopt to navigate the world. Uh, This is actually the groundwork for interdependent relationships, for ethical behavior. This is why it's first. I have spent the last month with this one. And as instructed, I didn't move on. I've read the rest of the book, of course, but I didn't move on in my own sort of practices. I'm staying with this particular... Uh, binary for myself for now. The reclined meditation is the subtle body practice, which is so potent and important for me. What I would like to do is find out from you what exactly your intent is for your reader to heal, solve, sort this divide between public and private and how we can begin to dwell in the gray area comfortably. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's such a important question, I think, that really gets at the root of many of the activities that we deem for each end of the binary, and we might not even consciously know that we deem them for, oh, here's what I do in private and here's what I do in public. And I was teaching for a long time in public every day, all day. I'm a very introverted person. And I found it really weighing on my um, capacity to actually have a private life that I was passionate about and happy with. I didn't realize how hard I was working to hold up both walls and all my prana was going to hold up these dual identities and instead of really using my creative force in a productive manner that found integration between how I presented myself and dealing with the consequence of that, and then also reaping the consequence of having repron in my private life to actually find expression and growth in different ways that would then dictate public behavior.
0: Mm. Mm. No to our listener, the lack and abundance binary is also implicit in this one. Because we'll talk about pranic economy in that one, and that's going to be an important one for most of us. Go on. Mm-hmm. Totally.
1: Yeah, and I, I wanted to start first with an ethical grounding because, you know, I know this book doesn't fit super well in the self help world, and I was curious in your intro how um, Buddhism and yoga philosophy would turn you off, and I think I think I might have a feeling.
0: <laughs> you know, it's just been. It doesn't necessarily turn me off. I feel like I just want to learn new things. And I have a whole pile next to my meditation uh, cushion of incredible Buddhist books and teachings from Roshi Joan, Pat Enkyo O'Hara, Kwong Lu, Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, I feel like I've got the meat of what I wanted to know at the age of 50 right here. And I was like, oh, God another philosophy, book. I'm just being honest, another philosophy book. Oh boy. You know, I cracked it open and literally within the foreword that you yourself wrote, I was blown away by the fact that I was about to learn many new things, not just a few.
1: Yeah, I totally feel that. I have also been just disenchanted to a degree, although I love Roshi Joan and all of her work in the world. But one of the things that really inspires me about her work is that it's so engaged and it's engaged really for an older population. And that's how I met Lisa, because I used to work at Urban Zen. So I would be in that area where uh, she used to live all the time. Of course. Yeah. And at that time, I was 20 and everyone around me was 45, 55, 60, you know? So now in my mid 30s, I was like, where are all my millennials at? Right. <laughs> like, where's the next wave? Where's right. the next wave? Let's actually put some work into the world that feels. N- New, is new, is a new synthesis, isn't just a regurgitation.
0: Yes. You know what's interesting? Since you mentioned Moshe-Jonah, I actually feel like I tell as many of my friends about her as possible, especially younger friends in their 30s and 20s, because I think the word engaged that you use, the fact that she's so committed to socially engaged Buddhist practice and really making it real, boots on the ground, relevant for all of us. I want younger people to study with her, because otherwise it's going to be missed. Her understanding and her articulation of things is absolutely priceless, one of a kind, beyond. None of us can possibly bring it the way that she does, based on her experience. So I tell everybody to get the book, uh, Fruitful Darkness, and like go study with her as much as you can. Take courses online if you can But I hear you 100%, and we do need to find the younger crew and get them involved.
1: Yeah, definitely. Less of a like regurgitation and passiveness. And I address sort of the commercial idea of non attachment in transitory nature, really hoping to sort of blow holes through that sort of passive spiritual go with the flow kind of mentality that we really see being adopted, I think, in my generation.
0: Mm, that's also in the lack abundance uh, section as well, which I really appreciated. Going back to private and public just for a moment. Over the course of a few weeks, the first thing that we started to do in this chapter is develop a bird's eye view of ourselves, meaning literally using witness ability to watch ourselves from the ceiling of all kinds of scenarios. Um, Notice how you hold yourself at a party. Notice if you're standing at an event with other people. Check in with your chest, with your arm motions. You ask us the effort it takes to uphold acceptable body language. I started watching all of this and I realized that my expenditure, which again we'll talk about later in the book, was extraordinary. It was so high. And I was, you know, doing all these things to make sure people knew that I was listening or I was present or all these things. And I realized I don't need to do any of that anymore. And the first thing I noticed about this particular chapter in exploration is that it's given me a sense of quietude in my body. And I thank you for that.
1: Good. Um, That's so beautiful. You know, then you have this baseline between, I know that's from at least my understanding of you, how you are in your internal private relationships. And I know that's how you hold the teacher's seat. So to have much more continuity like that is extremely powerful.
0: Yeah. We could pretty much stop talking right now. That was incredible. That's exactly right. Checking in with how you hold yourself with family, even on the phone with your friends. I noticed I was like cursing a whole lot with my friends, which I don't, Otherwise, do anymore, which is really weird. And I noticed when I'm all alone how I hold myself, which is the third prompt. Uh, I'm on page 35 right now, if you're following along with us. And I noticed myself slumping sometimes, like, ah, nobody's here. Boom. And I started to change my posture and just hold myself in a certain way for myself, which also lent itself. It wasn't an expenditure, I noticed, it was actually a pleasure to care for myself in this way. I really appreciate also, we're going to page 36 now, the private-public Venn diagram that you encourage us to create, uh, asking ourselves the following questions about public behavior. Why do I behave like this? How do I hope I will be judged or seen? What societal standards say this behavior is correct in this public space? Um, what public behaviors help me maintain my power or my standing? Holy shit. You know, what compromises, ethical compromises that I have to make to keep this power dynamic alive? These are really deep questions that have forced me, and I'm so glad I didn't read this at 40, because I think I would have been really sad, you know, with some of these answers. But at 50, I feel like I care a lot less about what people think, and I'm finally coming around to be able to answer these questions in a way that feels whole to me. Uh, I'll just go on, and then I have a question for you. Ask yourself the following questions about your private behavior. Still on page 36. What voices in your head do you keep private? Boom. Boom. This is a lot of uh, the work that I did with the Handel Group finally turned me on to the voices in my head. Like, I didn't really realize that I was thinking that was God. How do those voices encourage codependent behavior in the private realm? Wow. Two, what private behaviors help me maintain equilibrium? Can I own them instead of hiding them? making note of them not to teach others, but to remind ourselves of our own agency. This is so powerful. Three, when I feel challenged or uncomfortable in private, what codependent coping mechanisms (laughs) have I developed to avoid responsibility for my own internal state? I could literally stop now, right there.
1: (laughs) That's a big one.
0: I mean, the number of times in relationship with both my man and my child and my child's father, thirdly, coping mechanisms that I've developed to avoid responsibility for my own internal state with each of them have become straight to my face, straight to the surface. And I'm starting to be able to see and laugh. Like the sense of humor is crucial in these explorations. Um, You're in your 30s. And my question along this moment is this How on God's green earth do you understand this depth at this age? Because when I was 30, I was lucky to be alive. (laughs) I'm really asking, like, how, where did you get this from?
1: I mean, I could say the same thing in my early 20s, you know, lucky to be alive. I think that I had a pretty serious university of the soul age 15 through age 25. And so that was a real booster shot to my consciousness. And I also think spirituality, Buddhism in particular, you know, I'm an intelligent person, but I won't do shit if I'm not extremely motivated and I really want to do it. And so it was such a schism in my own life of why can't I stick to something? I have the skills, obviously. And until I found really Krishnamurti, Sri Aurobindo, Vedanta, you know, I was a little bit lost. Obviously, I could pontificate circles around therapists and all of these things, but I knew that something was off for me until I really found that deep, deep, deep motivation that I'm not quite sure where this path is going, but this is what I'm extremely passionate about. So that's where I'm headed.
0: Got it. And um, I appreciated the reference to Aurobindo, Krishnamurti especially, because both of them came through in my 30s, too, and really made a difference in my understanding of things. I want to keep going. Page 37, I just want to sort of breeze through a couple more of these for our listener. I would like for you to actually define codependent for our listener first before I go on, because before I was exposed to what that actually means, I really didn't understand what it meant at all. I didn't understand the depth of pain that people go through when they're really truly codependent and how it's not dissimilar to any addiction where you have to work your way into it to work your way out of it and to really see it. So if you wouldn't mind to define codependency for us, please.
1: Sure, of course. I think it's when In our central nervous system, we've really lost our state of sovereignty where we can fully own our own emotions and our own experience. And we seek validation in the private or the public space. It can be through our professional life. It can be through our marriages, through our children, that we always have to call back for a reflection that we recognize. And sometimes that reflection is extremely unhealthy. You know, we're not totally conscious of our behavior, yet it's our only real coping mechanism. And so then that programming gets really deeply embedded into our interpersonal relationships where they don't know themselves without us and we don't know ourselves without them.
0: Got it. Okay, so that helps. The parts of ourselves that we reserve for private space with self or partner or close friends can reveal where we enter the codependent private end of this binary. It's not to say you can't vent every once in a while, you say. We're on page thirty-seven. But remain aware that this venting is often part of your consciousness attempting to work through misperceptions of the public part of this binary. And what's so interesting is I think before I read this book, I truly did not have an understanding of what you were saying, and I truly was spending a lot of pranic energy and other kinds of energy In these moments of unloading and dumping and uh, giving over my power, all kinds of stuff where I just didn't need to be doing that at all. And in me cleaning that part of my behavior up, I'm seeing my man also doing the same. Because he's coming from a very codependent background. I spent a lot of my childhood alone, so I don't really have that bone in my body. But I definitely would foist my internal state onto him and give him responsibility for it where I shouldn't have. Um, So just thank you for this page yeah,
1: 38. can thank my partner for that. I will thank my <laughs> partner for that it when I comes those. to Taos. <laughs> I will do that. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Yes, I put it into those words, but he did this thing to, with me early on where he'd be like, okay, three minutes, okay, 10 minutes. And I could just sort of spew debriefing after I taught or what I could have done better or things like that. And then when it was over, it was over. And I was like, wow. That is incredible. (laughs) I'm all for it. Let's get it going on both sides. How does he determine the amount of time? Uh, Probably by my emotional state, if it needs a little more room to air out. Got it. Yeah. Top of page 38,
0: you, you say that one of the most profound private practices while asking yourself about these reflective lines of inquiry is to stop all gossip. This is a tough one. As you say, even if it's just you and your best friend sitting around the dinner table, guess what gossip is? An attempt to protect our own egoic projections. (sighs) (laughs) In, in, In committing to quitting this, we learn to stop pinning judgment, dislike, hatred, or blame onto others and take responsibility instead for our own responses and reactions. This is true power. What I've identified, this is true power. And I've watched with friends as I've held myself back and listened to them talk and as I've joined in and been a gossip also ever since reading this. And I can see the difference in my, being a chronic economy, I can see the difference in my bank account chronically when I don't contribute
1: and I don't go on the ride Mm -hmm. versus when I do. Yeah, it takes a lot of restraint, you know, for sure in that moment when all of the sort of piano keys of triggers are getting hit. <laughs> but in the long run, it's like such an amazing thing to go, oh, wow, I don't really know the full story. Maybe they don't either. Hmm. And little I have a full conversation with that person? I guess I don't know. And it becomes a matter of, as Roshi Joan teaches so beautifully,
0: make sure that you stay very, very curious about things you know, and don't snap to judgment so quickly. I don't want to give the whole book away here, and I do want to move on to a couple more binaries before we close out here. But what I want to say is on page 39, you talk about seeing, redefining the collective, quote unquote, in order to break this private public binary and begin to live somewhere in between we must redefine the collective as a blank screen explain this to us
1: mhm yeah so i think in new age spirituality really in the last 5 to 10 years i've heard so much chatter about the collective consciousness the collective consciousness this is happening out in the world in the collective soup or the cosmic soup and really starting to look at that language because the neuro-linguistic programming of that, I kept seeing this othering happening, that this is happening out there. It's not happening in me. And actually, when I lived in New York in my early twenties, I was at the Shivananda Ashram. I think it's somewhere in midtown. And uh, Swami was giving a Dharma talk and Swami Shivananda said something along the lines of the entire world's suffering is your suffering. And at the time I was like, okay, yeah, cool. That's awesome. <laughs> and then as I really listened even more closely to how much my generation in particular was othering the world suffering through that type of language of collective consciousness, as someone who studied transpersonal psych in grad school, the understanding that everything that comes through the filter of my eyes and my sense portals has to go through my subjective understanding of self. There's just absolutely no way around it. So how could we say that this issue is happening out there in the collective cosmic soup, but yet I still had to perceive it in a particular way, then I'm in a chemical state all of a sudden, then really that issue is inseparable from me. So the blank screen is the idea of, oh, wow, this is me absorbing stimulus, and then I'm projecting onto what I'm calling the blank screen, my perception of the problem, of the issue, um, of the systemic problem.
0: And then I'm skipping a little bit over a few very important things, but I want my reader to really spend the time in this particular section. When we catch ourselves nodding along with a certain sentiment, liking a post, reposting a post, posit that in order to agree or disagree with something, we're seeking recognition in that reflection. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are you denying about your own unique context? So what are you numbing out? What are you not seeing? What are you trying to join in with? What are you trying to get away from? These are all questions that I think we haven't been invited to ask explicitly yet. And that's why I think this book is of the utmost importance right now. The Sort of granular bits of this, and I do really want my reader to read page 40, examine your motivations, intentions, emotional turmoil, like when you quick to repost something. Okay, 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 okay. Can, what if you were to wait an hour and make sure that's still what you want to put forth? You know, these are interesting questions. Commit to interrupting the ego structure's futile attempts to seek sameness. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's an intense one. Oh my God. It's just so awesome. Last thing for this section take everything personally, take nothing personally. Talk to us about
1: this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if this would also resonate with you. I've learned so much about myself from swallowing. Yucky things other people have said to me about my behavior, and really getting on my white gloves and going, Did I do that? How did I make them feel that way? Is part of that correct? Why did I do that? What did I wish I had done? You know, to actually not just say, Oh, they're so judgmental, or Oh, they don't get it, or Oh, they're not in my shoes. They have no idea, right? To actually take their emotional response seriously. And then to also have the competing idea and being able to hold that intelligently, the competing idea inside ourselves is, do I want to hold that truth that they're throwing at me? Is that something that I would like to um, wear on my identity or not? And there's a really happy marriage there, I think, where you can get really real with yourself and then decide what stays and what goes.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that a lot. I think a lot of the work that I did, right when I turned 40, I met uh, the founders of the Handel Group, and for better or for worse, it was some of the most important work I did to get real and to own my behavior with certain people that made people feel really bad, own my behavior with certain people that made people feel really good when it was at my own expense. So I appreciate this invitation because it really helps me to see, okay, how about now? (laughs) You have you checked in recently? And is there anything that you could do better? Is there anything that you're doing really well? Like, it, it's not just calling out. It's recognizing also that, you know, things are hard and you are doing your best. And where could you do better? Cool. Once you see it, don't belabor the issue. Just take action.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Precisely. Yeah, I
0: really Thank you, Element, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. We have been personally using Element for well over a year. Element is spelled L M N T. Elemental electrolyte salts that have completely changed the game around my house. Every night before bed, James and I split a packet, helps us sleep, helps us get good solid rest, and helps combat fatigue, muscle pain, fogginess, irritability even. Did you know that your cells need electrolytes for optimal function? And if you're struggling with any of those things, you might just be deficient in electrolytes. They facilitate hundreds of cellular functions in your body, including nerves, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, fluid balance. Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No artificial anything in here. No sugar, no nothing. My favorite flavors, as I said, orange watermelon and the chocolate caramel in hot water is just incredible. Element comes in tiny single serving packets you can carry with you wherever you go. They're great on planes as well. With my link, you get a free sample pack with any order so that you can try all the flavors. And that link is drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. The spelling is D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Element. Again, the link, drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. Appreciate it. The second binary is sick and well, and it particularly resonates with me because in my family, there was somebody close to me who was quite unwell. And upon reading this chapter, realized that I spent a pretty good portion of my childhood pretending I was sick to get attention, which is so weird and tragic. And also, you know, I find in talking to people about this, very common. Um, talk to us about how this became the second
1: binary and why it is situated in the book where it is. Definitely. So this was definitely Ruby and Bess's suggestion that this come in the first three. It was on the list for sure. Um, I didn't realize sort of how prolific it would be positioning the whole work of transitory nature. And I had to be really honest with myself where I've spent time in the last 15 years, and that is in the wellness, yoga, new age spirituality space, and wellness in particular is something that I've just grown quite averse to in so many ways. And I really wanted to look at that because that wasn't the case when I started my path long ago and was like, okay, I've got all the tools. Here we go. Let's do it. And I think my rigorous study of Buddhism and Zen and meditation, you know, obviously motivated the title of the book. But I think really looking at commercial wellness is very, very important because it's infiltrated so much of our language in the way that we eat and the way that we interact with each other. I mean, New Age spirituality even entering into politics nowadays. So it felt very important that we looked at our inevitable death.
0: And there's a section, there are so many really important aspects of this uh, binary that really kind of blew my mind, but there's a section on page 54. The healing as wholeness myth. Let's clear this up once and for all, you say, I'm quoting. All caps, (laughs) you are never broken. (laughs) (laughs) Much of the self-help rhetoric we hear preaches that healing equals wholeness. Beneath this language is a worldview subconsciously rooted in the sick, well, binary of broken and fixed. Oh, my God. And what we don't realize, if you're even listening to this right now, you're part of the perpetuation of this binary A lot of us unknowingly approach our body-mind from the following vantage point, quote, you are healed when you can share your story out loud and it doesn't make you cry, quote, you are healed when you're no longer triggered, quote, you are healed when the same toxic situation doesn't come around again. All of this is some sort of kind of putting down of friction on the path, which I've seen in almost a daily basis, friction is actually something that helps us to grow into a place where we're less attached and more free. And you even say as much in this paragraph here, we're not seeking to obliterate triggers. Intense situations arise, quote, and I have a handle on how I choose to respond, end quote. Like, that's where the sick well binary is actually healed. I feel. (laughs) Talk to us a little bit about where this came from in your own personal experience, and then we'll move on to the third.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot in my private one-on-one work, which is where a lot of the anthropomorphized anecdotes come from in the book is composites of lots of different, you know, personal issues or student issues that I've worked with over the years. I kept hearing people approach me with this internal negative implicit bias towards self as if it was something that they wanted to escape. And they were really, especially in their natal chart, really only willing to look at the lower half of the bell curve and say like, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep drawing this kind of person into my life? Or why can't I manifest the job that I want? And I kept thinking to myself like, wow, I think it's actually the web of thinking that is causing this suppression almost of someone realizing their unique skill set and that no one else has it. And No one was really going, hey, hey, you in there. Why are you so great? Let's figure out where the best context for you is. And they were on these healing spiritual journeys. Instead, the question was always, like, what's wrong with me? And how do I get better?
0: And I think that gets a lot of airtime the what's wrong, the sort of picking people apart, the, you know, and of course, yes, it has great value to look at where in your childhood or your teen years, where the trauma is, where the pain is. But to continue to belabor and to identify as that, with that, it doesn't actually solve things. But to identify with that and the places where you're really doing great or the places where you're really super aware and awake that's kind of where you, this whole thing gets resolved, you know, for moments at a time, and then it comes back, and then you have to resolve it again. Definitely. I really Yeah. I appreciate this one a lot, because it pertains to so many of us. There's a section on the pain myth on page 55, for those of you who are, if this is resonating with you, um, last thing in this section, page 61, rites of passage for endings. What wisdom... Mark your transitions first with a goodbye and then a hello. Mm -hmm. Moving from grade to grade, city to city, job to job. We have this modern cultural habit of throwing a party, celebrating newness, but the closing of the door isn't acknowledged. I remember when I moved out of my apartment in New York finally to come here to the desert, my girlfriend Allie Bogard, whom you'll have to meet soon, uh, she instructed us in a way to step out of the Threshold of the apartment in a very certain way to pull all the parts of ourselves from all the corners of that space and to bring ourselves with us rather than leave little sections of ourselves there unwittingly. It was so beautiful, Mm -hmm. and it really helped me to move forward. Yeah,
1: what prompted that section for you? Um, actually, so I'm not a parent, and I don't desire to be one, but I do a lot of readings for parents and then looking at their child's chart or their partner's chart or multiple children's chart. And I think one thing that was so apparent in that we don't have that language at a young age at all of how to actually have a modern rites of passage, which I reference in the book, because there's so many beautiful ones from indigenous cultures, but not really of our modern contemporary culture, like well, how do I actually create an ending ceremony? And how do I do it for my seventh grader who is wetting the bed and having a really hard time moving States, <laughs> you know, it became like a practical necessity almost, I think inside family units.
0: That one we could unpack for days. I'm going to move toward the next binary, which is masculine feminine. Um, and I do think that you and I are going to have some more time in another forum. So Masculine, feminine, there's such a cumbersome thing about it. And just so that our listener is well aware, we're not about to start talking about some debate over gender. Or Mm -hmm. This is not that conversation. This is about the vehicle of your body right now, realizing that you carry both. Nothing is to be prioritized. Nothing is more important. Uh, Nothing is more valuable. All of the understandings about... What's inherently feminine and what's inherently masculine are needing to be verified. And your sort of invitation in this section, I'm looking at page 89, is to develop universal attributes of human consciousness. And you name 10 of these attributes. Unbelievable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, I just couldn't be more excited about this. And your languaging around this is basically regarding continuously doing the inner work to excavate where these sort of manipulative femininity and toxic masculinity live within our own lives. These universal human attributes, as I'm about to name them, automatically, naturally rise to the surface. The first is creativity. The second is discernment. And what that means is you sense the presence of discernment when emotion is, serves as information for you. And action reflects non-attachment to outcomes. Oh, my God. It's just so good. Third is intimacy, which is really a truthful soul connection, no longer solely attached to body and physical form. Fourth, passion slash compassion care for another's well-being without any conditions or strings attached five empathy making space for another's lived experience without comparing it to your own (laughs) in order to value or devalue it six determination committing to the deep feeling and intensity of sharing your true genderless spirit oh my god i skipped ahead and i did one of the practices the dancing (laughs) And jumping around and like yelling and screaming. And to be in touch with your genderless spirit. Oh, my word. What a revelation. Um, Let's see. Number seven is sensitivity, which is the capacity to sense the unspoken communication of all interpersonal narratives, all consciousness structures. Eight is intuition, pure receptivity, deep existential listening. Nine, equanimity. Meeting each moment as neither masculine nor feminine, but with resilience and cohesiveness. Oh my God. And (laughs) I'm just, I'm so impressed. And then 10 is openness. Last but not least, the checks and balances system for the ego structure. Remind yourself frequently, you say, that you might be wrong. That this is not a reflection of your self-worth, but instead an assertion of your willingness to be humble and honor the multiple truths presenting. Oh, my God. This is what you refer to as body as vehicle. Radiant, loving, fluid, home. And I have to read this before I talk about the subtle body practice. May we all seek to set ourselves and others free from the social prison of gender as we break the masculine-feminine binary through lived action and novel structures of consciousness. God bless you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that chapter was really the first chapter of the book that I wrote. This is a lot of my own internal exploration. And then with the explosion of the polarity industry, I think that that was Mm, like a must for me, you know, to sort of put my internal world out there and and do it in a way where lots of people could see themselves in it. So then they go, oh, wow, I can't believe I've been holding on to that for so long in my own Mm -hmm. identity. Is that me?
0: Yeah. In each one of these uh, sections, our listener, Sue, walks you through a subtle body practice that you can do for the 30 days of the exploration if you are choosing to take it on. Um, It's a tremendous help, the subtle body practices. I actually did this one this morning, even though I'm not there yet. I'm still working through the public and private. But the breath work and the meditation were really beautiful, the movement, the mudra. For our listener, they're all very simple, but very potent, very profound. And you can feel that they weren't just chosen for the chapter. They were chosen because they will elicit a very certain level of observation in you that dovetails really appropriately with the matter at hand. So thank you for that.
1: Yes, of course. I thought that was so important.
0: <sighs> yeah. When we go into the fourth binary, we're now in second section. I'll just go through a couple more and then we'll do a part two together. I wanted to talk about this one today because it's lack in abundance. The pranic economy, it's so... Um, This is the most important one, I feel, for this moment, because so many of us are going through this recalibration of what it means to be hardworking, recalibration of what our income is. The way you speak about pranic economy, I think, is really important to hear you talk about it. Um, Can you maybe give a little sort of background on Lindsay, with whom you begin this chapter, a longtime student of yours, and how this became such an important part of this
1: book? I'm sure you've heard this too. Like, how do I get my professional life to match my spiritual life? Or I want to work for myself, or I want to be able to start my own business where my ethos can grow. And I feel real alignment, 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 you know, that is a really popular word. And when I got down into the nitty gritty with lots and lots of body minds of, you know, asking for alignment, but then having a certain misperception of how they're actually spending prana and you know that can be in cash flow, that could be in time, that could be in attention, that could be um, being dismissive of Earth's resources and the imprint that that leaves really on our karmic pool table. I think really needed to be addressed as this cohesive unit of not just in a capitalistic way or extractive capitalism, money and resources that we currently deem valuable. But what are all of the dismissed resources that are actually co-creating with the universe all of the time that we aren't aware of how we're spending them? And so that was really the birth of the human resources report at the end of the chapter to look at renewable and unrenewable energies in your life. And here on
0: page 100, you talk about uh, actually it's 101. Do any of these common thought and action patterns sound familiar? I have to charge less because I feel like I'm not worth more. I'm barely making ends meet, but I'm too scared of rejection to ask for more money. I need to get the name and branding perfect before I can charge more. Hmm. I love doing this, but I'm anxious all the time because I'm not getting the numbers I need. Okay, all of this is the... You call it the anxious, lack-based, abundance meta-dialogue firing within us. Maybe I have enough today, but what about my future? If I opt out of this paradigm, my resources will drain away and I'll be left destitute. So you're asking us, instead of all of this dialogue, all of this narrative, to dismantle this binary, and creating anew by learning to live in the shades of gray, learning to grow our tolerance for ambiguity. And one of the most practical things is you offer, I think, in the whole book, frankly, 102 to 103, this is so profound for me. Identify all the ways we perpetuate this this binary of lack and abundance, lack abundance, lack abundance, where we go from states of depletion to this sort of numbed out consumerism, even if you're not buying anything and you're just scrolling and looking and searching and blah, blah, blah. Will this consumerist loop you ask on page 102 be unwound anytime soon or 103? No, it won't (laughs) given our global climate, but in cultivating awareness around how we engage with this between these states of depletion and this, sort of numbed out consumerism, we can actually start to dismantle it. You have the most incredible prompts here. Ask yourself, what is the dominant feeling attached to an urge to spend or acquire? What inner truth am I actually avoiding by spending energy in this way? Spending is in quotes. What are the qualities of the source from which I am about to consume? Like, Okay, great. You want that dress? You're still thinking about it two weeks later? Who made it? Where was it made? What resources were used to make it? Like there are plenty of companies out there who are using incredible sources of labor that are super ethical, where people are being paid, not just a fair wage, but an incredible wage and their families are being sustained versus... Uh, was that trust made by a child mm-hmm. in forced labor situations? And then the final question that you have here, is this a sustainable energetic exchange? Am I getting my energies worth? Because each time we expend resources, you know, on a physical, mental, psychic level, something is dying. Something is birthed, you say. Something is sustained. What are these things? Have you ever thought about these things before? Reading this particular section has really helped me to stop the train of consumerism in my own life. And I am now sort of emptying out, not just giving stuff away, but seeing how I used to collect a lot of stuff, and I'm pretty good about this sort of thing, I was still collecting stuff. I was buying stuff that I didn't need because of a, an image that I had in my head or that was presented to me in some catalog or some online situation. Talk to us a little bit, Sue, about what prompted this particular exploration and why it's so important.
1: Mm-hmm. I think really, you just nailed it the way that you were like, oh, an image or an idea of how I could be. I mean, my sister is a professional photographer and shoots for mega brands and she's only 18 months younger than me. And she did my year long program maybe two years ago. So we've had so many in-depth conversations of marketing and sales and what goes into making that campaign look the way that it looks. And uh, I lived tiny for a while so I was forced to do this where I went from an 800 square foot apartment to a 200 square foot school bus and you know I started really writing this chapter then although it was titled A Yogini's Guide to Minimalism <laughs> and it was much more intense than actually what I'm now seeing as lack and abundance in this chapter because I knew there had to be a much more middle pathway of addressing our consumerism especially in America And then how we're rapidly outsourcing the idea of consumerism as abundance, as plushness, as excitement, as I've made it, you know, all over the world and the detriment that that's creating globally to the resources our future generations are going to need to just survive all for an idea that we're not even fully aware of, you know, I was like, oh my God, (laughs) we're
0: not even actually really aware
1: of the idea that's being Mm. foisted on us. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Oh. So I wanted to break it down really simply yeah. and you know, have that sort of rubber hit the road moment just like you're saying, well, where is the stress made or better yet, do I have one that I can already create this sense of embodiment in? Why does the newness do that for me? Right.
0: That right there is the crux of, I think what many folks struggle with. Why does the newness of this item, product, idea, anything, make me feel better about myself. Mm -hmm. That is like, uh,
1: so of this moment. Mm -hmm. And then when you get underneath there and you're like digging in that fertile soil, it's like, oh, maybe I haven't been treating my body as well as I could. Or, oh, maybe I've been hanging out around people that make me feel insecure. Oh you know, all these things start to rise up to the surface and it really had nothing to do with the purchase in the first place.
0: That's right. Exactly. This one really helps me a lot. I can't tell you how grateful I am for this one because it has literally saved me a couple thousand dollars since I got the book. Not kidding. Um, I'm just going to turn to one or two more mentions I shared this with my team this morning, and I think we all thank you for this. Page 104. In a public Dharma talk, a student once asked me about living a life of alignment as a health and wellness industry professional. At the root, I sensed a deep wonder in her question, how do I manifest a life I love? And yet I could also hear her need for this to feel effortless. A desire connected to a glorified idea that abundance would just click into place if only she could crack the manifestation code. Doom, doom, doom. The M word. Mm -hmm. I have been party to the perpetuation of this word, and I am both sorry and also desirous of redefining it. You responded, quote, Who said alignment isn't scrappy? Who said alignment isn't filled with painful moments and tough decisions? Who said alignment doesn't mean sacrificing material comforts to invest in yourself in a sustainable way? When I shared this with my people, you can't hope to make your life happen just by writing it down and seeing the vision and feeling the feelings of it being so. You actually have to get your hands dirty. You actually have to do the hard work. You actually have to get in there. And at times, fight for what you know is true.
1: Definitely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that manifestation gets sold to us. And I think it's a beautiful word. I mean, I really do. You know, we're consciously creating beings. We're co-creating with energies all around us all the time our karmic code, new stimulus that's coming in. So it's not as though the word is like this demon word, but I think the sort of sugar water industry that's bubbled up behind it has been difficult to watch, you know, and and to understand like, it's okay. Like what if you actually have to make a big sacrifice in your life to free up these funds to then go do something that you really care about Or we can just keep wishing that it will happen, but really our actions aren't aligning with our deepest driving desires at all, and we're in this schism all the time.
0: Yeah, this is a big one. This is a big one. If you're listening to us and this is making sense to you, honestly, take the time and get this book and work your way through this particular section because it will help you see how human you are and how normal it is and how mitigatable it is like how easy it is to mitigate this whole experience of the myth of lack and abundance the myth of manifestation and start to really see okay so if i have the capacity to work if i have certain privileges like we haven't even touched that but that's also a factor um you know what does that mean what responsibility do you have and what can you let go of in terms of this sort of pie in the sky Pollyanna idea and start to just do the work. I feel like we should continue this in a part two. I don't think I've ever done a podcast this long. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll absolutely be so honored to do that. And I really appreciate it.
0: Okay, good. And if you are listening, we'll I think we'll skip to the next binary after this but I do want my listener to to close with this page 105 ask yourself is my vision of alignment and personal success respectful to the growth and success of others what I found in my own work is that if that's true if I'm actually conscious of the growth and success of others my own happens naturally Mm -hmm. love Um, that yeah, it's so true. Am I putting the work in day in and day out when no one is
1: watching? <laughs> uh,
0: that's so good. For a long time, it was just when people were watching.
1: Yeah, I think that's a normal phase, too. I really do. And then it breaks apart. <laughs> it breaks apart, and then we get yeah. older.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'm not speaking in years. I'm speaking in maturity. Like, Sue is basically with the maturity of a 55-year-old. In a 35-year-old body. How old are you?
1: 34, yeah. Turning 34. 35 this month. Nice.
0: Happy birthday. Thanks. Um, lastly, on the deepest energetic level, do I steal from others? Do I hoard resources? And you ask us to look closely at relationships with coworkers, mentors, bosses, family, This is so important. I can't state enough how important this is because when you really look, if you happen to notice that you are hoarding resources, i.e. information, money, even time, it's costing you.
1: Yes, 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 yes.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's so huge. And that was such a big part for me, especially with my teachers and my mentors. Like, how do I be so respectful of their willingness to open doors for me, to give me information, to sit with me, to process with me, to work with me. Like, how do I pay it forward with that level of maturity all the time in my own actions?
0: Yeah. And really, the last couple of points. This is where you might be surprised, our listener, because one of the ways in which to recover from this sort of mistaken myth of lack abundance binary. schedule unscheduled time for yourself daily, daily in caps, you know, blocking off 30 minutes a day to do nothing. That's my next move right now. Just going to go sit on the couch and do nothing. And you have to protect it fiercely because other things will find their way into your sphere of vision and priority and will come and interrupt you. But this to build your pranic See how it has nothing to do with money and yet everything to do with money (laughs) creates this, quote, genuine abundance, which you define as a more fluid understanding of equality and symbiotic exchange. That's genuine abundance. So if you have, you share. So if you earn, you give. So if you have more time, you give some of that. You have a consumerism inquiry on page 109, which is very specific and has really helped me a lot. That's where I really saved a couple thousand dollars in the last few weeks that I really shouldn't be spending. So thank you. Just looking more deeply at where you're attached to lack. I was hearing my mom's voice. May she rest in peace. I was hearing fights that my parents had when I was very small over lack. Um, You have a whole self-worth and lack wound inquiry on page 110 that also helped me a lot what steps do you take to rejuvenate your own energetic reserves to what extent do you covet the lives of others i finally got old enough to stop doing that but wow that was a good part of my 30s and 40s do i have thoughts of self-hatred and (sighs) self-judgment like those are not allowed on any delta flight anymore (laughs) not allowed not allowed there's so much more i i could go on for days here we'll meet up for the second half of the book but this reactionless neutrality how do i cultivate a reactionless neutrality like actually i'm getting a really good level of practice with my almost 15 year old kid who is awesome really awesome and has weathered a lot of change in the last year and a half that reactionless neutrality was what drew me into yoga in the first place was what drew me into almost every teacher with whom i stuck around for some time and we can't value that enough and i would love for you to close us out with talking about what this means to you this reactionless neutrality
1: i think it's really the quietness in your central nervous system before you sort of throw up this sharp edge to really know yourself like the back of your own hand and go, I might do, I might do, I might do. I've heard myself do before. Is that appropriate now? It doesn't mean those things aren't going to arise. It just means that it isn't this regurgitation of past thought anymore. So, you know, reactionless doesn't mean passivity. It means extreme curiosity for the ways you have behaved in the past and then the new imprint of you that you'd like to birth now Mm.
0: it's really making a choice in the moment of how you want to show up Mm -hmm. for yourself or for others tremendous work sue i'm so glad that i said yes to receiving this book so glad that we get to do a part two here because i think it was too much for one podcast there's so much depth and richness here and i really
1: appreciate your time today well thank you so much and i appreciate everything you put out into the world and very grateful for your work see you again soon okay bye